Are you ready to take your leadership in your organization to the next level and beyond? Your competitors will be there before you know it. Today's leaders must perpetually innovate their leadership approach, evolve their organizations, and grow faster than the competition. Welcome to Innovating Leadership, co-creating our future with Maureen Metcalf. In the next hour, you'll meet innovative leaders who have become successful at the helm of some of the most respected organizations in the world, and you can become the next big success story. Now, here is your host, Maureen Metcalf. Hi, welcome to Innovative Leadership, co-creating our future. Today is our five-year anniversary show, and I am here with Christopher Washington. Christopher will be the host of the show, so I'm going to do our intro. I'll introduce Christopher, and then he will take over from here. So I am your host, except today. My name is Maureen Metcalf. I'm the founder and CEO of the Innovative Leadership Institute. We elevate the quality of leadership across the world and work with those leaders to co-create a thriving future. Our work includes assisting leaders in identifying disruptive trends and developing strategies to transform themselves and their organizations to thrive now and in the future. I'm a regular contributor to Forbes and a lead author on the award-winning book series focusing on innovating how you lead and transforming your organization. I'm also a fellow with the International Leadership Association. And today our host is Christopher Washington. Dr. Christopher Washington is a tireless supporter of global leadership and education. He serves as the provost and executive vice president for academic affairs at Franklin University, a private nonprofit institution of higher education, enabling the broadest possible community of learners to achieve their goals and enrich the world. Under his leadership, the university has more than doubled undergraduate majors, tripled the number of graduate programs, and added doctoral programs to meet the needs of current and future students around the world. Dr. Washington takes a very active role in his community, supporting international relations, serving on the board of the International Visitors Council. He also serves as the chair of the board of Global Ties U.S. in Washington, D.C. Christopher, thank you for being here. I am delighted to share our fifth anniversary show with you and to have you host and lead this conversation. I think I have to add that to my bio, that I'm also now <laughs> a show host. Maureen, it is a delight to be here. I am a, such a big fan of yours. And now you are celebrating five-year anniversary for this show. Congratulations. Could you have imagined at that time when you started this show the extent of the disruptive forces that we're experiencing today that are really reshaping our world and really providing serious challenges to leaders. I don't know that I imagined last year that we would see this kind of disruptive I mean, forces. It's a tidal wave of challenge for leaders today. And I wrote, I do trends now every year based on the shows, and our top trend for 2020 was disruption. But at that point, I was thinking artificial intelligence, machine learning. Sure, technology. Yeah. Sure. And a little bit of global unrest. We're, we're seeing shifts across the board politically around the world. But I didn't imagine a pandemic and, and the level of civil unrest we're seeing. So, you know, one of the things you and I talk Talked about is the image of Janus and the idea that that image is depicted by a figure looking both backwards and forwards, so a head with a face on the front and face on the back. Sure. And I've used that image. I actually have a carving on my fireplace. I collect African art. And so I have the African version of that statue. And what really, what that stands for to me 
is the idea that we don't discard the past. We build on all of the things that we have worked so hard to to learn and develop over decades for you and I. And yet, we still build on that foundation and shed what isn't working and develop what will. And to your point, with this massive change, what we need to do as leaders is different. So, you know, that's a really powerful image for what leaders need to be able to think about and to be able to do. And so, you know, looking back over over these hundreds of interviews that you've had over the last five years, are there any enduring lessons for leadership that your guests may have shared with you that relate to these current challenges that we face, the current challenges in view? You know, it's hard to narrow down. So for this conversation, I actually pulled clips from some of our top interviews. And our number two interview of the five years was with David White, who is the CIO of Battelle National Labs. And he talked about diversity of perspectives within our organizations producing better products. The question, what can we do individually to take some control and make greater impact in systems that are dysfunctional? And that was what you and I said we wanted to talk about. Yeah, so there's a lot of conversation going on now around diversity, Mm -hmm. uh, and and that's defined in a lot of different ways. Mm -hmm. Uh, Diversity of thought, diversity of uh, racial mix within your teams, diversity Mm -hmm. of lifestyle, Mm -hmm. uh, social economics, um, all of that is is defines diversity within your organization. And what we're finding is that uh, diversity within your organization is beneficial in providing or producing a better product uh, for your internal use, whether you're um, developing things for corporate use or for your clients. And so as we think about what's going on in society today and how do we come together to make the overall good, um, the overall societal benefit better. Um, you have to value everybody within the, the mix and the formula. Mm-hmm. And what we found is that when there is inclusion, the whole group uh, benefits and moves forward. Where you don't have that, you have underperformance within your organizations. Mm-hmm. And we've, we've actually seen um, empirical evidence where there's underperformance, even at the, um, with companies that are measured by their stock price. In fact, when we talk about the the leadership qualities of Leader 2050 or Leader of the Future, which really is now and forward, one of the things we talk about is innately collaborative, and we define that as as soliciting multiple points of view. So diversity of thought, which often comes in different body shapes and colors and experiences, or socioeconomic. Absolutely. And, and and that's one way that you get to, you can, we can be very clear as on the fact that we want diversity of thought, but how do you get diversity of thought? It comes from experiences mm-hmm. and you're going to get diversity of thought from the experiences of, of someone who, who, who is not um, at the same economic level that I may be. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're going to bring a different perspective, a different thought process. Mm-hmm. Uh, they may be more frugal because they are not used to spending at the same levels that I may be used to spending. The same thing is true when you have people that come from different uh, backgrounds, different geographic locations across the Mm -hmm. country. Mm -hmm. All of these things are valuable as you have this conversation, and that's the key. You Mm -hmm. have to have a conversation. It makes um, no sense to bring in diversity if you're not going to listen to these folks. 
Well, and as much as it's easy for me to list that on our list of leadership characteristics, it's hard to integrate different points of view. I think most of us want to hear we're right and go on and get the work done, not hear the 12 different ways of looking at a problem, which requires then a different set of skills to synthesize and also, and something you pointed out earlier, to keep people engaged. How do I pull parts of your point of view but reject others, create a solution that doesn't look like anyone's point of view, right? and still have people feel like they contributed, not like they've been discounted? Yeah, and that's a good point. So, I mean, if your goal is only to have the conversation, then I, I call that analysis paralysis, right? Mm-hmm. We're just going to talk and talk and talk and not really get to a viable solution. So you have to synthesize it to something that you can actually execute or put into action. And that is a, a um, unique skill, right, to, to be inclusive, to, to listen. But at the same time, you have to muster people in a single direction to say, we are going to take components of each one, mm-hmm. everybody's thoughts, mm-hmm. but this is the path forward. Now, for the folks that are on your team, you have to get on the same page. So when when I make a decision, even though it may not be what you wanted, it may not be mm-hmm. what they wanted, but it is our decision and we're going to uh, move forward with this and you have to get in line with that. Everybody has to march behind that leader mm-hmm. once you make a decision and then be part of the success of that mm-hmm. uh, implementation. And it's often not what the leader wanted either. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you know, you have to be flexible enough to pivot, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. I've had situations where I've gone into a, a meeting with a clear idea of this is what I wanted and mm-hmm. come out with, you know what, that makes sense and I can actually um, admit that I didn't have it all thought out mm-hmm. and let's accept that we're going to go in a different direction. It's still going to move us forward, but, you know, I'm not, not always the smartest person in the room. Well, the smartness comes differently not having the right answer, but being able to do that unique skill of synthesizing. Absolutely. For me, diversity and collaboration has been important. With the social justice movements now, we think of racial diversity. And I know you think about this because you work with global audiences. Diversity is not only ethnicity, it is economic. I worked with the dean of the vet college at OSU, and he grew up in Appalachia. So there's economic diversity and how I look at the world coming from a less sophisticated geography in West Virginia than I do coming from New York City or Paris. So being able to embrace perspectives from a broad range of Groups of people, my, all my kinds thinking, of backgrounds. Yeah, sure. yeah. I, I think really helps us navigate the complexity we're experiencing right now. Yeah, yeah. That is fascinating, and uh, you know, the world through technology and telecommunications, it's enabling us to come in contact with people from very different backgrounds. That creates either an opportunity or a challenge for us with regard to managing and and facilitating those diverse perspectives. Now, Maureen, I have to ask you, as a fan. After reading your publications, listening to your shows, I've always sort of maintained that you're a believer in the power and potential of leaders, you're more of an optimist of their ability to create a better world. Uh, Is there anything that has been said in the past episodes that fuels your continued optimism about the transformative power of leaders? So I couldn't do this show without doing a shout out to the International Leadership Association. So I'm a fellow of that organization, which means I am 
committed to building the body of work of leadership and leader scholarship partnered with being a, a solid practitioner. So how do we bring into the world the best scholarship married with the best practical application? And so I attend their conferences. For people who've listened over the five years, you've heard probably 75 or 100 interviews from that organization. So best scholars, political leaders, and practitioners. And I always leave that conference feeling uplifted. And even at one of the conferences, we had just had a significant bombing. And in fact, the conference was in Palm Beach, Florida, where there happened, they happened to arrest someone who was sending out a bunch of letter bombs. And still, those conversations, because they were so open and willing to address our shortcomings in the International Leadership Association of what are we doing and not doing to advance not only the scholarship, but what is happening in our world right now, and how do we as an organization focused on leaders address the shortcomings that we believe we see. So it it is so encouraging to see the open dialogue to look at how do we continue to advance something that is so important in the current world. So we have a a clip from Cynthia Cherry, who is their CEO and president. So please do listen to her talking about why is scholarship and leadership so important in this environment? One of the other things that um, I think is emerging through leadership in turbulent times, and I think one of the things we need to talk about, which also emerged from the conference, and we all knew, but it had to be articulated, was that we are in this. We are all, we are now in this state of turbulence, right? It's not going away. Mm-hmm. So how do we really um, work in a time that is going to be complex? How are we going to look at leadership in turbulent times? Because it's not going away, right? We talked about in... The 20th century, we have, for example, increasingly complicated problems. But today, we have increasingly complex systems, global systems that really amplify problems. Leading is exponentially more difficult and more challenging than leading was in the past. And so, really, what we're doing is how do we look at how do we, through the scholarship, through the practice, through the teaching, find ways of understanding leadership and its meaning for the 21st century and moving forward, right? So we're probably at one of those interesting points in time, a fulcrum point in history, uh, where everything that was is tripping over everything that is. And how do we, in turn, make sense of it, the meaning-making that we need to do, um, but also how do we collectively come together and through our collective thinking, our collective debate, our collective critical thinking, which I think is Mm -hmm. so important, come up with the evidence-based research and the evidence-based best practices that really help us moving forward. And I use the term best practice reluctantly because I think whenever Mm -hmm. we talk about a best practice, we are basically putting ourselves in the past. And so we have to keep thinking of how we look at moving forward in the ways that help us 
to not only survive in these complex, turbulent times, but to thrive. And then the second clip I have is, Christopher, one that you know because she comes from the International Visitors Leadership Program run by the State Department, and that is the program that Global Ties runs. Yes. So I met Rebecca based on an interview that you set up where she was winning an award for the work she had done to change the marriage age of girls in Tanzania from 14 to 18. And when Rebecca did that, she was under 30 years old. Right. So she, Very impressive story. Yeah. Won a, a Supreme Court ruling, I believe, to make that possible. So she went through the legal system. And Rebecca didn't grow up in a politically elite family. She was a normal young woman who made just such a dramatic impact on the lives of girls that will ripple through generations. Well, what I love about your show is you have these thought leaders from organizations like ILA, and you have these practitioners who are actually on the ground making a difference in the world. So Mm -hmm. I'd love to hear that clip. So that one will be the next clip you hear. The award that I got today was because of, you know, the things that I learned here, but also more or less the action that I took in the mm-hmm. country, mm-hmm. you know, in being a part of, you know, a change agent, mm-hmm. stimulating the change of legal framework around the issues of child marriage in my country. So it's an, it's an award that uh, was meant to honor IVLP alumni who is doing something uh, to change their society. Okay. Yes. So how did you implement this change? This seems like a big change. Well, in a way, in a way it is, although I, 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 most of the time I like to say uh, this, the work is still uh, ongoing, you know, mm-hmm. but what we did uh, was, you know, challenging the Tanzania Marriage Act, okay. which in a way was allowing girls to be married at 14 years old, wow. while boys were allowed to marry from 18 years old. So we felt like, you know, it was creating discrimination mm-hmm. and in a way downplaying the dignity of young girls and more or less giving more power to parents to decide on the matters that are, that we felt were very, like, you know, personal to young girls, especially if you want to continue with education. And the fact that, you know, this law was perpetrating a lot of child marriage incidents in my country and as it is child marriage is actually uh, a hindrance to girls' rights to education, health, and also opportunity. So in July last year, the High Court ruled in our favor and raised the minimum age to 18, and it also directed the government to have to change the law within one year. Okay. So currently, the process is, you know, to make sure that the bill is presented at the parliament and the parliamentarians also have a time to discuss around it and, you know, put relevant section that now will say 18 is the minimum age. And why does that matter? What, the change of the law? Mm-hmm. It matters because, you know, it, it, it was in a way a gap, you know. We had a lot of uh, campaigns around the country that were trying to sensitize uh, on the issue of child marriage, but, mm-hmm. you know, we also had like many cases at different court in my country which were trying to find or restore dignity to girls who are already married. And okay. as a result, because this law was present, this girl could not have, you know, like an opportunity to continue with their lives. And it, all, it was also a setback for a lot of campaigns because whenever you talk to people like, you know, marrying children is actually has an effect, so it's not a good thing, they always say like, you know, but the law allows. 
you know, mm -hmm. the law allows. So it was really like a setback to different campaigns that were happening. And mm -hmm. we felt like we needed a bold commitment from the government in making sure that these, uh, these acts of child marriage are ended. But maybe someone can actually ask, why did you go to court? Uh, why didn't you like maybe sought other ways? You know? mm -hmm. So this law was even uh, mentioned in the government report in 1992. That it was a, a long-term issue. It was a bad law, you know. Mm -hmm. So we have like more than 22 years and we had like different advocacy going on in the country mm -hmm. trying to sensitize and advocate for the government to the parliament to change this law. But we saw minimal progress and having seen firsthand how girls were affected by the issue of child marriage, I felt like we needed to do more mm -hmm. and we needed to, to take like an urgent uh, step this law. I felt maybe because sometimes if the law is touching on the country's revenue, you know, income, maybe people will change that law faster, you know. Okay. But maybe child marriage was something that they weren't really like close to their heart because it was really, it was not really close to their heart because the one were affected by child marriage maybe are like very far, you know. So I felt like we needed to act now. Again, it's just so encouraging to listen to a young woman who saw a problem and went about addressing it. And, and that interview happened a few years ago. And as we are in a point right now in the U.S. of addressing issues of social justice, to listen to people who identify an issue and they do something. Take action. Right? They, sure. Yeah, take action that is appropriate to, to the, their context, the context Yeah. to actually make global change. And that's part of what encourages me, not only what's happening on the show, but what's happening in our – the protests right now sparked by the killing of George Floyd have now caused protests around the world. And my hope is that we actually do make substantive change that is, again, appropriate to the context, that we don't throw out the history of we're a country built on law and order. So we're not, we should not get rid of laws and have anarchy. How do we make space for laws and social justice. And I think the and is such an important part of that equation. This is the sensitive balance of the concept of democracy, getting people involved in ways to change their world and improve their circumstances. It's not easy. It can be quite messy. Well, and the fact that it's messy says maybe that it's working. Sure, sure. That it's not supposed to be pretty. The Innovative Leadership Institute is your trusted partner to create perpetual innovation and evolution in your leadership and organization. Are you ready to innovate and evolve? Since its inception, the Innovative Leadership Institute has been dedicated to helping leaders evolve their leadership mindset and skills and create organizations that can continually innovate to achieve results in a highly competitive and rapidly changing environment. We help leaders, management teams, and organizations identify and create the capacity to update how they lead, identify, and implement transformative solutions necessary to meet their mission and create strategic advantage. The Innovative Leadership Institute offers proven results backed by leading-edge research and a global network of accomplished consultants and thought leaders. Visit InnovativeLeadershipInstitute.com. Maureen and her associates are ready to discuss your needs and tailor a solution to meet your goals. Move forward with the Innovative Leadership Institute. Visit InnovativeLeadershipInstitute.com today.
You are listening to Innovative Leadership, co-creating our future. To reach Maureen Metcalf or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to info at InnovativeLeadershipInstitute.com. Now, back to this week's program. Maureen, today we're faced with a global pandemic. Mm-hmm. You, you alluded to the social unrest related to issues like social inequality in our society and around the world. Uh, concerns about poverty, environmental degradation. These are big issues. Any insights on how leaders can tackle these rather persistent, wicked problems, the problems mm-hmm. of our time? So I've done several interviews with leaders who are actively addressing wicked problems, and I want to highlight a couple. Uh, One is with Ron Heifetz. So he co-developed the Adaptive Leadership Framework, and he talks about adaptive leaders understanding wins and losses and how do we actually implement sustainable changes and realizing that to kind of what we talked about at the beginning, for us to truly implement change, we need to change not only what's out there, those things, those people, those systems, those cultures, but I need to evolve myself. And that's the foundation of our whole innovative leadership framework is how do I evolve not only the tasks I do and how I do them, but how I think about the world. Well, that's the tough work. That is the tough work. And so Ron Heifetz will talk a little bit about implementing sustainable change. In nature, what happens when an organism achieves a successful adaptation in order to thrive in a changing environment, what happens is it develops new capacity. But it doesn't throw out all of its old capacity. Mm -hmm. Most of its new capacity builds from its old capacity. An organism can generate radically new functionality. Human beings can do amazing things compared to a chimpanzee. Mm -hmm. But 99% of our DNA is the same. God didn't do zero-based budgeting. <laughs> you know? That's a great quote. We build from our culture. Right. And we need to honor our culture and, and then sift through what's precious and essential to conserve, mm-hmm. what needs to be lost, and then mm-hmm. what innovation will enable us to take the mm-hmm. best of our history, values, virtues, you know, and traditions mm-hmm. into the future. And yet anything that gets removed, with it, people become disenfranchised, some element of... Well, either some element or some habit mm-hmm. or some power relationships might shift. There are the mm-hmm. losses, even if most of the culture remains intact, the losses are still really very significant. So if you're going to mobilize people to achieve an evolution in their culture, mm-hmm. where their culture has new capacity to live up to those values, perhaps freedom of opportunity more Mm -hmm. fully, there are going to be losses on the way. And from a diagnostic point of view, the practice and the practice of leadership, you've got to be able to analyze and sense and identify what those losses are. So back to your medical practice of diagnosing, now applied to leadership. Exactly. And uh, the inclination, I think, of many people with great ideas and virtuous beliefs and cherished causes is they tend to discount and devalue the values and the virtues that are opposing them. They tend to two-dimensionalize them. Instead of moving towards their opposition and towards their enemy and trying to understand what's really at stake. Because the people who have the most to lose are the people who fight the hardest. The allies come cheap. 
Mm-hmm. Allies are easy because they basically are going to enjoy the benefits that you're promoting. Mm-hmm. But the people who have a lot to lose, they're going to fight. You know, a lot of people know the phrase, people resist change. But it's not really true. Nobody gives back a winning lottery ticket. People aren't really, people aren't stupid. <laughs> All right, so people I resist love- the stuff that doesn't favor me, and I exactly. embrace the stuff that... That does. People... People love change when they know it's a good thing. Mm -hmm. It's only the risk of loss or the Mm -hmm. reality of a loss that people resist. And some changes involve a real loss, a loss of power, of status, of importance. You, You change the, you stop gerrymandering the congressional districts in North Carolina and you're gonna change the power dynamics. And that will generate real losses in how resources are allocated in our country. And to the factions that are involved, that's a, yeah, that's a real tangible exactly. experience loss. And I think one needs to be able to speak then in leadership with compassion mm-hmm. in naming the losses that you're asking people to sustain. If you're liberalizing an economy that's been controlled or you're educating girls who've never been educated in a, in a community, yeah. it's going to change the dynamics in that family. That girl is going to start saying things to her father or her mother or her grandparents or her uncles that she hasn't said before. Those are significant challenges then. Mm -hmm. We may see it as pure benefit, Mm -hmm. but to other people it's a disorientation Mm -hmm. to their way of being, to their tradition. So you're talking about the gives and gets of change and you were giving the example of educating young girls. Yes. The changes and the losses to both men and uneducated women when you start to educate a girl need to be understood and appreciated because we need to know how are you going to hold people through those changes so that they can see that you're not upending everything they believe in. You're going to honor and value a lot of their traditional culture. There's just some of it that's going to have to change. And then we have a quote from Henry Mintzberg. And Henry is a writer and educator currently focused on rebalancing societies. So Henry's work really talks about how we the people influence. And this has been also interesting during the the recent uh, demonstrations is so many people I've talked to are waiting for the government to do something or business to do something. And Henry talks about how the plural sector, we the people, can also get involved and vote with our dollars that impact the businesses, vote with our votes impacting government, and being active, not just waiting till we go to the voting booth, but what are the activities we take on a regular basis that help our leaders understand. And this is where it really is an and. I can't disregard what got us here. And how do I shift how I behave? How do I see the world differently? What are my implicit biases? How do I change my company to be more reflective and more embracing? And I thought I was, and there are things I'm changing. One of the things I'm working on now, I call a pathway to reformation. Okay. Which is, how do we get to reformation? So we're studying reformations. We're studying the reformation in Germany, Mm -hmm. the original Mm -hmm. one. We're studying uh, uh, the civil rights movement in the United States. Mm -hmm. These were all reformations, major shifts, uh, uh, fundamentally nonviolent major shifts Mm -hmm. in behavior. And, And, you know, it starts with a spark. It starts with Rosa Parks 
Yeah, I was going to say the civil rights movement is a brilliant example. Yeah, getting on a bus in Montgomery, Alabama. Mm -hmm. It starts with the fall of the Berlin Wall. Some spark, something. It starts with Martin Luther nailing 95 theses on the door of a church. It starts with a spark. Some community picks it up, and then it spreads to other communities. In the case of Luther, thanks to the printing press Mm -hmm. uh, that enabled his word to get around Europe. Mm -hmm. Uh, Today, it's the social media. Um, it spreads, and as it spreads, it goes, it becomes, or could become, a global movement for change. But that starts on the ground. It doesn't start with leadership. It doesn't, st- it, it, unless you want to call people on the ground who are doing mm-hmm. it leaders. But it doesn't start with formal leadership. Mm-hmm. It doesn't start with elected politicians. But they act uh, based on the pressures that they're they're pushed to do things. So that gets back to where we start, or one of the places we started there are people who benefit from the imbalance and they're not likely to move the needle. And all of us who invest in the stock market are complicit in wanting it to go up. Mm -hmm. I want my retirement fund to go up, not down. So I am equally guilty of of making that choice. I've written about that. What we do is we put our heads in the sand uh, people have money invested, and every once in a while, we don't know what, what some agent or some, some person representing us is investing. Mm-hmm. Every once in a while, we lift up our heads out of the sand, check the bottom line, oh good, the stocks have gone mm-hmm. up, I've made more money, and put our heads back in the sand. So we're all part of it. We are all part of it. But how many people are getting the message? But do we have to wait for everybody to get the message? Be too late. Well, and then the question is, of the three pillars, who owns it? Right? So we, we often look to government to fix it, yeah. or we look to business to fix it, or we look to plural society to fix it. What is the bringing together of the three? Because it, it, it can no longer be fixed by one segment. That's correct. But it's got to start in the plural sector. That's yeah. what I mean by groundswell. Because you're not going to get the major reformations from, from business or from government, although people in business and people in government are part of the plural sector, personally. And actually, I would say if you look on our webpage, we have now adopted the values that Henry put forth, and it talks about being an interconnected society, Mm -hmm. that, that we are dependent upon one another, that I rely on you, Christopher, and the environment and other people in my context and people I will never meet to function, one, as a human being. I'm driving down roads uh, that were built by people I don't know. And on and on, the Amazon driver that drops stuff at my door. And then the large institutions that, that there are people protesting for supporting democracy. There are government leaders who are making decisions that we really are bumpy, but civilized in how we move forward. You know, Maureen, your notion of uh, dealing with yourself as a condition for being a great participant in democracy and leading others is a really powerful one. You know, that a lot of folks think that autonomy is a high order value, but interdependence is a higher order value and recognition of our interdependence is a tough thing. You have to think mm-hmm. about others in their in their constituency. Like Mintzberg said, you also mentioned that democracy is rather messy. And so um, I'm reminded of the immortal words of Reinhold Niebuhr, who once said about democracy, man's capacity for justice makes democracy possible, but man's inclination to injustice makes democracy necessary. 
And I think he signals the importance of one's character and dealing with oneself in determining the nature of our outcomes, human outcomes, our community outcomes, our interdependent outcomes. Are there character traits that are important for leaders today? And can these qualities be developed? So I want to go to an interview with Joyce Beatty. And let me take a step back. The traits, I think, that are so important right now, certainly we know collaboration, we know being a good thinker, we know humility and trustworthiness. I uh, listened to an interview with the Commandant of the Marine Corps recently talking about empathy. Uh, and and that's not the person I would imagine would talk about empathy. Thinking of the image I have of boot camp and things, empathy isn't the first thing that comes to mind. But he talks about, you know, you're sending soldiers overseas and risking their lives. We need to to create the conditions where they can thrive. And part of that is understanding the challenges they face. And I think right now, as we're seeing people dealing with the pandemic who don't know how they're going to pay their rent, uh, they're dealing with sickness and loss, and they can't uh, see their parents in nursing homes. They can't go see them in the hospital. Some of them pass away without the human touch of their loved ones. This time really calls for kindness and grace in being able to take the perspective of people who are experiencing things we don't understand. That's right. So the clip with Joyce actually came about when I was working with a young African-American woman, and the woman was treated as if she were the a coat lady mm. at a holiday party, and uh, she was actually one of the engineering staff, and pretty disillusioned by that experience. And so what I wanted to do is reach out to someone to talk with her, not directly, but by way of an interview, because I wanted to share it with a broader audience, that when she leaves the room, she no longer has a voice. And so Joyce tells her story about, uh, if you listen to the broader interview, several of the injustices she faced, and she's now a leading figure in the Democratic Women's Working Group. She's on the Black Caucus. Uh, she's on the House Finance Services Committee. So she is highly influential now as a black woman in Congress. But she didn't get that way by leaving when there was an injustice. And she is the picture of grace and the picture of poise. <laughs> I, I don't think I could ever be as poised as Joyce is. So I, again, encourage our listeners to just listen to this one clip and go back and listen to Joyce and also Doug McCullough talking about how they've navigated some of the social justice issues that they've faced. How did you keep positive on the days that things didn't seem fair People were not kind. It wasn't fair that you had to use the shorter water fountain. It wasn't fair on lots of counts, I imagine. And that had to be hurtful and just feel bad. Oh, I'm sure I, I had a lot of those days as I was growing up, and I still have them today. <laughs> uh, so I, I think for me, it's the discipline of understanding when you have a victory, you don't have to get even. I also realize that one of the things when people are against you, whether that is because of discrimination, if that's because of your gender or your ethnicity, then you have to stay more focused. And sometimes that's difficult. But I think one of my strengths is the, the energy that I possess to 
always have a movement within myself. And and that movement is to be victorious. And they're not always big victories. It might be that I mentored someone and now I see them in an accomplished position. It might be that I took someone with very raw talents and hopefully by experience and mentoring shaped them into a new leader. Mm -hmm. So for me, it's always thinking of how I can beat that person that's against me. I'm highly competitive. (laughs) Any of my friends listening and people who know me, I am extremely driven. I'm highly competitive and I only require about three hours sleep. So I have a lot of time to think about what my day is going to be like and how to shape myself. And here's the good thing. When you have grown up in the world that I grew up in, I grew up with segregated neighborhoods. I grew up with cousins in the South in the 60s, you have to remember, who couldn't vote. I grew up with Rosa Parks and my idol, and I grew up with a lot of strong national black women. Being interested in politics, not ever thinking I'd go to Congress or be elected, but I grew up with the Barbara Jordans and the Shirley Chisholms, and then I have enough of a black background to remember the struggles and the fights back to the Harriet Tugmans and the Sojourner Truths. And so I always like to tell people I carry them in my soul. Mm -hmm. So on that day, I kind of look up and I see the faces of Fannie Lou Hamer saying, arrest me, fighting for civil rights and equal rights for women. So I've always been surrounded by women and very fortunate. I call my mother a quiet soldier, 95 years old, still living by herself, still managing her life and still giving me instructions. So I think I get some things quite natural. The second interview is Mary Croson, and and this is, again, the the combining of the academic research with the real-life experiences of uh, Joyce being in the House of Representatives, Doug being the CIO for the city of Dublin, Ohio. Mary talks about the research that she did with her colleagues in building a framework around character and the idea that, one, there is a framework— It's based in uh, the center of it is judgment. If I have poor judgment, I will likely have poor character because even if I think I'm making good decisions, I'm not. Interesting. Judgment Uh, is a function of our character. Yeah. Or our character is a function Function of of our our judgment. judgment. Sure. (laughs) Yeah. Both highly interconnected. And that character is habit. So if I have a habit of being thoughtful and demonstrating integrity and caring about other people, those become my way of being. And so in this clip, Mary talks about dispelling some of the myths, like if you're of high character, you get left behind because those of low character will squish you. And in the short term, sometimes that happens. But over the longer term of our career and our business relationships, people of low character are revealed as such. Well, that's interesting. And and to add to that, there's sort of a new ethic in our generation about character and what's important. You know, there's a Mm -hmm. greater attention to the environment, to society, to caring outcomes, to the sense of community. 
We had developed a, a framework uh, with 11 dimensions of character. The 11th dimension is judgment, and that's what Aristotle would have called practical wisdom, and it sits in the middle of the framework, okay. drawing on all of the other dimensions. Mm -hmm. Dimensions such as courage and transcendence and humility, humanity, drive, etc. Sounds fascinating. Mm -hmm. One, it's surprising that it didn't exist because mm -hmm. we all refer amorphously to someone of character, mm -hmm. someone of wisdom. So I like that judgment is in the middle. Mm -hmm. So, what are some of the common misconceptions about character? Well, I think the first piece, and I because it comes, uh, character comes from, uh, is derived from virtue ethics, and uh, people ended up shortchanging it around simply about ethics and being a good person. And mm. that if you're going to be a good person, it would, as they often would say to us, you're operating with one hand behind your back. And what we felt uh, they had missed out of understanding character is that it not only contributes to individual well-being, but sustained excellence. Mm -hmm. So one of the first pieces of misconception is that it's about high performance as well as it is about being a good person. In fact, we, we typically stay away from ethics and morality when we talk about character mm -hmm. because the people end up putting it in the wrong box when they when they think about why character matters. Uh, if you can picture, uh, and for your listeners, is that we use a, like a normal curve. You mm -hmm. can picture that and that what does it take to operate plus two to three standard deviations from the norm? It is a place of loneliness for people. It's a place mm -hmm. where you don't necessarily have supporters. It's a place of innovation and creativity. Mm -hmm. And it's a place where it takes a lot of courage. It takes a lot of drive, transcendence, humility, mm -hmm. et cetera, to be able to operate there. So when we position it that way, then pe people begin to understand that that first misconception is that if you're not operating with character, you're operating with one hand behind your back. It's character and competence working together. I would say that would be the first uh, misconception about it. Another one would be that you can't develop character. So it is striking how many people at first blush think, mm -hmm. well, I was always told that you were whatever it was uh, by the time you were five years old. You had uh, become the person that you are. You were formative. Those are formative years. But boy, I hope that universities are built to develop people. Well, absolutely. And character is a habit of behavior. It's simply habit. And we have these virtuous mm -hmm. habits. So luckily, I get to work with great scholars in the area of exercise science. So we use mm. the um, analogy of uh, if you're going to physically exercise, uh, you know, how many people have mm. their steps on their, uh, on their watch, right? <laughs> Telling them, reminding mm -hmm. them what they have to do every day to build that mm. habit of exercise. Well, we look at character the same way. You can put an exercise plan in place mm. around how you're going to exercise these dimensions of character. So that'd be the second misconception. The third one would be that it's all subjective. And that one is absolutely false in the sense that good social science is built on understanding how do we define something that we're looking at, what are the observable behaviors. And mm -hmm. for example, for us, we would have a 360 assessment. Mm -hmm. You know, 360 meaning your leaders, subordinates, colleagues, etc multiple people looking at those behaviors and all mm -hmm. identifying whether or not there's strength or weakness in it.
And again, I encourage people, if you want to hear the broader framework, go back and listen to it. And on the blog, there is the image, and I think the image really helps the podcast of what the character model looks like. And Mary talks further about her model in the blog. So so we do marry those together for many of our guests. And again, trying the intent to create a resource and body of work for our listeners to implement sustainable change in your world that as leadership is changing, we all as leaders need to evolve with them. And sometimes it's hard to find those resources in our very time-constrained lives. Interesting. We were talking about caring, purposeful, people of high character and uh, how, how we form habits of action that make us effective in what we do. And yet, we're experiencing a time right now where much of our habits are being disrupted. Much of our organizational life mm-hmm. is being disrupted. And disruptions are often viewed as negative, uh, an anomaly to avoid. Um, how, however, there are these leaders who, despite the circumstances, see the possibilities in disruption. What are the lessons learned from your interviews about leaders and their various responses to these disruptive forces. So one of the interviews that I love is with Greg Moran and Terry Bettinger. So Greg was the, see if I get this right, chief strategy officer under Malale at Ford during 2008. They did not take TARP money, and they transformed Ford. So someone who is in his bones is a transformational guy, has had a long career of effective transformations, is now running a small organization surrounded by millennials doing interesting work with being aware of the things happening in technology in an organization. And there are interesting stories to tell, but not here. Uh, Terry has also had a very successful career as a CIO in multiple organizations. She's now at the state of Ohio in the Agency on Aging as their CIO. And Greg and Terry talk about what it takes to make sustainable change So to me, the process of disruption and what I'm learning in the job that I have now Mm -hmm. is that you really do have to be a learner to disrupt effectively Mm -hmm. because you're not going to get it right the first time. You're not going to understand all the nuances. And so iteration becomes your friend. And then a Mm -hmm. discipline around how you do that is your friend. So if you look in consumer companies like that have been very, very successful, like Facebook or, uh, you know, Microsoft on the consumer side, as Mm -hmm. well as on the enterprise side uh, and other uh, and then on the B2B side, you see big, successful companies like Amazon and their web services business. Mm -hmm. Those are not companies that sort of got it right the first time. Those are companies that have a discipline of reinventing each little, even at a very elemental level, the things that they do that create a customer experience, right? And so when I say a discipline and a process, it's about recognizing that nothing's sacred. And as soon as you get customer feedback, you're going to react to that feedback in a meaningful way with Mm -hmm. a disciplined process to get better. And so, oh, so go ahead. No, I, I agree with Greg, and I, I'd like to add a facet to that um, that I think is complementary, but a little bit different in that I think um, when I say disruption, right, for me, it's about, again, changing the value propositions, right, for whether it's individuals, teams, companies, right, uh, states, whatever, nation states, right? So it's mm-hmm. about the value proposition. And I think that 
when, Greg, you talk about discipline processes to sustain, I think often sometimes involved in that discipline process is the passion and conviction of the mission. And I I don't think that can be overlooked. I think um, some of the greatest uh, successes of disruption probably rode quite a bit on that passion, the passion that's spurns continuous learning, it spurns persistence, it spurns perfection, right, sometimes Mm -hmm. to a fault. And so I think um, part of successful disruption has to include that passion, which is the driver of some of those things. And then secondly, I couldn't emphasize enough, you know, well, I'll say disruption is, is again, that realignment of value propositions. Digital disruption for me is just an accelerant. Right. Of the same thing. When you talk about digital disruption, it is an exponential accelerant of that shift in the value proposition. Mm -hmm. And so I think the the passion, right, sustains uh, or accommodates the pace. Right. So if you have disciplined processes and structured without the passion on the mission Mm -hmm. and the passion on the purpose um, that, again, spawns innovation and creativity that could implode, right, because of the pace when you add that digital disruption. Um, And so I think as leaders, as individual leaders, as corporate leaders, as enterprise leaders, as organizational leaders, are you passionate? Are you passionate about the mission that you're doing to create, right, the value statements that are forward-facing value statements? I mean, I would raise you one and (laughs) and say that the passion is essential. Uh, Mm -hmm. Having lived this, it's too hard. If you're not passionate, Mm -hmm. you won't do the work. It's too hard. Again, through the interview series, you will hear the themes of the characteristics that leaders need to take on to be successful. And, And they do build on the questions you ask, like character and passion for the thing we're doing and Mm -hmm. commitment to doing good in the world. It's, it's not just, we all want to get paid. So, so we take that as a given that we want our enterprises to be successful economically and all of our stakeholders be treated fairly. And I think that's built into what allows these changes to be sustained different than the old days of chainsaw owl, where you go in and chop people and, Investors make money, and it's all about the economics versus yeah. versus today. It's there are broader social mm-hmm. purposes to our work. That's great. You know, five years of interviews. This is fantastic. As you think back on all of these interviews and the impacts of the folks you've interviewed, what are your final thoughts? What What are some of the lasting memories or ideas that stay with you? You know, my commitment, it, it was it has been my commitment, and if you listen to the earlier shows, I had the longest introduction, painful. Um, but part of that introduction was to invite listeners to think about something in each show that they could put into daily practice. So I want people to walk away with an idea that either changes their mindset or changes their behavior. And I would say now more than ever, we as leaders have a responsibility to those we lead, to our families, to our communities, and to the world to be better, to continue to grow. Not that we were bad before, but as the world changes, we need to evolve to meet the needs of those who will come later, who will look to this point in time to see what did we create and did we use this 
precious point in time of disruption to pivot toward the good? Or were we self-serving and small-minded and just looked at protecting ourselves? Well, I certainly will reflect on many of the ideas and the comments from the clips and uh, work toward the improvement of myself as a leader as a result of participating in this show. And I want to thank you for, for allowing me to host today. Thank you. And as such a precious friend, thank you for all the things you've done behind the scenes to help the show and help me. And to our listeners, thank you. If this is the first show you join, welcome. And for those of you who have been companions along the road, whether you are a guest or a regular listener or someone who sent me an email, thank you for joining us and thank you for the impact you make in the world right now as a leader or aspiring leader, impacting people in your lives positively. Thank you again for joining us this week. Please tune in for another edition of Innovating Leadership, co-creating our future with Maureen Metcalf next Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. We hope you'll join us then and have a great week.